Welcome to Wise Women Speak with Linda Pritcher and Lana Bastianuti, where we give voice to the wisdom in women. Hi, Lana. Hi, Linda. So today we're in studio with Reverend Barbara Lee Callahan, and we're going to have a wonderful conversation with her. So let me give you a little description. Uh, Barbara is a minister at Hancock United Church of Christ. She is a graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, has earned a master's degree in counseling and educational development from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, as well as a master's of divinity from Union Theological Seminary in New York City. She loves to run, cycle, hike, write, and in general is a lover of life, which we love. Uh, When Barbara is not working, she can be found outside exploring near and far with her wife, Kate, their daughter, Eliza, and dog, Cusco. So welcome, Barbara. We'd love to have you here. Well, thank you so much for having me here. I'm very happy to be here today. Good, good. So the first thing we want to explore with you is you took sort of a non-traditional route. Not a lot of women are necessarily ministers or go that path. Can you, can you talk to us about how it, how you were brought to that? Sure. Um, A couple of things. First, just so you know, now, um, for many seminaries, they actually have more women and they're entering classes than they do men. Um, So there's been a real change in sort of the demographic of who is showing up and going to seminary and really um, doing that and at different periods of life. So that's very different than it was, say, 10, 20 years ago. But I did have a particularly circuitous route, I would say, to um, the ministry Um, when I was three years old, I began to articulate what I would call now a call to ministry. Um, When folks would ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would say, I want to be a minister. And, um, or sometimes I would say a professional baseball player, but most (laughs) of the time it would come back to minister. And um, my, my family didn't quite know what to do with that. They, they on one hand thought it was great because I, had, I was raised in a pretty conservative kind of evangelical house and community. And so it was like, oh, you know, Barbara's really feeling connected to this and feels a strong call to something. But there really weren't women ministers. And still, I said, this is what I want to do. And so it took a long time to sort of find my way to be able to do that, which became much more complicated in my mid-20s, kind of early to mid-20s when I finally came out as gay. Um, then that was you know, really thwarted. Um, And I was working for a non-denominational campus ministry at that time and was fired um, once I came out. So the the sort of path to ministry seemed pretty closed for a while. Um, And then it opened up again about 10 years later. That's remarkable. You didn't have a template or a um, someone to look to. You this just kind of bubbled up in you that you wanted to do this. Obviously, you had a, a religious background that was strong within your family, but you hadn't seen any ministers before. There were no, I mean, female ministers. What I did see was female missionaries. So women who had been out in various missionary capacities would come back to my church and sort of tell these amazing stories, and I was completely enthralled. And so I, I for a while, wanted to actually just be a missionary because I did see that as a path. I just knew um, it took a – when I was three, I didn't necessarily have the sort of strong sense of I'm a girl and here's what that means. You know, I was just a kid. It took a while for me to realize yeah. that that wasn't open to me and kind of like when I realized football wasn't open to me. I mean, it was a similar kind of thing. Mm. 
What about the missionaries when they came back and the stories they told? What what was it that sparked within you Mm. when you heard these stories? That's a great question. I was just really impressed with how um, alive they were. I mean, they were so clear on what their purpose was and what they were doing. And in my mind growing up as a kid, just being formed by everything around me, it seemed like they were really making a difference in a way that mattered um, for folks who, you know, are really nowhere on our map, you know? I mean, so it just seemed like they were having this sort of impact I don't know what I would think about it now in the same sort of way, but as a kid at the time, it was like they are doing this amazing thing with their lives. And it just seemed, um, it was very inspiring to me to sort of give up everything and go and do this. That kind of devotion was very inspiring to me. Did you ever do that? Did you give stuff up and go somewhere to make that kind of impact? Certainly not in that way. I did like short-term mission stuff. When I was in college, I um, I really was kind of discerning if I was going to do overseas missions kind of long-term, full-time in that similar kind of way, or if I was going to do something more in the States and maybe eventually go to seminary. And by the time I was in college, there were women in seminary, and there had been, but even in more conservative circles, there were women in seminary doing things like getting dual um, MDiv and counseling degrees. That was a very common path for women to take. Mm-hmm. So I, I sort of, um, through a process of discernment, decided I didn't feel like I was called to sort of overseas missions for the rest of my life and still don't really feel that um, and stayed here. So you've referenced being called to something. Where does that come from? Yeah, that's a great question too. Um, there are literally thousands of books written on on this exact thing. Like, how do we know? How do we hear? And to say that we're called to something just seems so ridiculous. And so, um, you know, it seems to have a great deal of hubris, I would say. So I, I use it in the circles I run in, it's commonly used now, but I'm always aware when I'm talking sort of outside of those circles that that is a really weird term. Yeah, you know, I I can understand that. It it does sound like you're special. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Instead of something coming from within you to say it seems like you've been selected. It has that quality. At least that's how that's how it seems to me. Is that true for you? Well, it, so so that kind of connotation brings with it some um exclusivity. Yeah. Right, of course. Which um I would say that we all have a calling mm-hmm. that every single person has a, a calling, and um, at, there's an old Frederick Buechner quote, um, who's a theologian, writer, author guy, who who defined vocation some time ago as the place where um, our deepest gladness and the world's deepest hunger intersect. And um, he defines vocation coming from the Latin word vocari, which means to call, and this idea that everybody has a calling of some sort. And life often is about the process of um, finding that place where those things intersect, right? I mean, I'm assuming that that's part of why you all are doing this. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. That's really that's really beautiful. I love that quote. So to answer your question as to how I knew, I mean, when I was a small kid, I just sort of, um, my parents did really uh, fan into flame inside of me this ability to have a connection with God. I mean, part of 
part of the beautiful thing about growing up in a home that I grew up in is that God was just really accessible. There wasn't any kind of like um, procedure you had to go through to just talk to God. God was very personal and accessible and um, also very powerful all at the same time. And so um, I found God in the woods behind our house and would explore there and pray and write. And um, my parents really encouraged that. So I just sort of had this sense from, as I can say, a very early age that whatever I was supposed to do, it included this. Even if you were a baseball player. But I knew it was going to be a big part of my life. So there was a, you described, there was a period earlier, there was a 10-year space where you um, were kind of left on your own, cast out in a sense, Mm -hmm. and then you found um, your next step. What happened in those 10 years? Yeah, those 10 years, I, um, when I came out, I was fired from the job that I had. Um, I was also part of a, a really large evangelical church where um, about 30 minutes from where I grew up, so a different church, and uh, was had, had to leave that church, was asked to leave that community. And probably 95% of my friends and support system were all sort of part of that same world and community. And so it was just, you know, it was a time of real, um, real exile, I would say. And also I didn't have a job, so I had to figure out Um, some just sort of basic necessities in terms of what that would be. So I I ended up getting a job stocking shelves in a warehouse of an outdoor company, like an outdoor retailer company in North Carolina. And I really only had the energy to sort of work maybe 20 hours a week because I was trying to find, um, finally trying to find like a good helpful therapist and just deal with everything. And... uh, so I really just kind of had to, for my own survival's sake, commit a lot of time to just sort of recovering from this world that I had been in and the confusion and where was God and what did this mean for my life? Because at that point, if I couldn't be in ministry, honestly, it, it was it was a pretty hopeless time for me. Yeah, I think that's really true for uh, for many people. Yeah, you've set your you've set your life in motion in a way, and you have a passion about it, and then something conspires in a sense, or that's how it seems, um, to thwart you from continuing. And mm-hmm. that is a time when people can look inside and see what's really um, what's really animating them mm-hmm. and how might they take another step. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I will tell you the story of, of probably a pivotal moment in that period, which was this. I was sitting on a rock in a creek um, near my sister's house at the time, she and her husband had graciously offered me a place to live, um, to sort of figure some things out. And, um, I was sitting there and I, I heard just really out of the blue, I heard in my head, um, the questions from the catechism that I was made to memorize as a child. Um, so the first question is, what is the chief end of man? is the original language. Of course, I would say, what is the chief end of humankind? Um, and the answer is to know God and enjoy God forever. And as I was sitting there, this came back to me, and I was just totally overwhelmed with the answer to this question because it didn't say, the answer wasn't, you know, to save the world or to do all these amazing things or to, you know, end world hunger, but it was to, to know God and enjoy God forever. And that that was sort of the beginning and the end. And um, 
that memory coming back to me really saved me in a moment because I thought, I can do that no matter what I'm doing, right? I can learn to do that regardless of whatever I'm being paid to do or, or however I'm making a living. And it just kind of um, hope began to open up for me in that moment. Yeah, that's a beautiful insight mm-hmm. that you yeah. something came to you that became a powerful force and that's you had clarity about something mm-hmm. that you knew would serve you well through the rest of your life. It, to me, it was one of those sort of, you know, Oprah talks about life's five defining moments. I mean, it, it's a very clear one for me. Yeah. And to me, it was just the grace of God. Like, here's a lifeline. I find it interesting that when when you were, as Linda says, cast out, you know, you found yourself stocking shelves, but it was at an outdoor company. Mm-hmm. I mean, your whole, you said originally it was in nature. It's a nature walking that you converse with God most easily. Mm-hmm. And there you find yourself drawn to this outdoor company. And then you have one of these pivotal moments once again on a rock in a creek. Mm. I'm I'm curious as to as you're going through all of these changes and this, like who am I and how do I fit and where do I go from here? And you have this pivotal moment. How how did your conversations with God or your relationship with God change? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was really mad at God. You know, for one, I had been very mad at God for a long time just for the fact that I seemed to be gay and that I couldn't do anything about it. And I tried to do something about it. And it seemed to really, really throw a serious wrench in kind of my life and what I sensed my purpose to be. So I was very confused. Um, And then after that, after I sort of got over that and began to accept, um, I was not towards celebrating it, but when I began to try to accept who I am, then um, I just, I really wanted nothing to do with God. I I really tried to kind of basically tell God to get lost. Like, I'm just going to take this from here. I'm going to figure this out. Thank you. Um, You've not done a great job so far. And um, and there was, again, something sort of about that um, moment. I sort of ended up throwing out in a way everything I thought I knew about God. And it it always makes me think of the Yoda's line, in his interactions with Luke in the swamp, which is you must unlearn what you've learned um, because it was just this moment of everything's gone. And then this very new experience of God came sort of rushing into my life, which was very solo. I had no faith community. I had no church. It was in nature. It was um, just me and God and the po- the poetry of the mystics, I would say. The writings and the poetry of the mystics were my friends. So... Um, I eventually found a more sort of conventional path back to God. I found um, the United Church of Christ, my current denomination, um, in my, I think it was about 97. Uh, so it was a few years after all of that. And then, that I mean, I really needed a community, so that was super helpful. Um, but yeah, in my attempts to kind of tell God to get lost, um, God just came doubling back in a, in a really gentle, loving way. It was actually about 2008, I began to really sort of uh, hear again or get this deep knowing again about that I needed to go to seminary, not when I was 60, but now. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I just, you know, again, it was a long back and forth between me and God of saying, look, I have a private practice. I own a house. I have a community. I have a life. I'm, you know, this is a terrible decision financially. Like, is this not what I'm going to do? 
And that went on for a while. I love the way we try to negotiate things. Yes. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. hey, this isn't convenient <laughs> yeah. right yeah. now. Yes. Um, but, but yet it sounds like, obviously, that that knowing, that pull mm-hmm. was stronger than you saying, this is not convenient to me. Your rational mind trying mm-hmm. to outsmart <laughs> that mm-hmm. knowing, it's you were pulled anyway and you ended up following that that knowing place. And I really like, you know, there's a saying in recovery communities that um, sometimes higher power does for us what we cannot do. And and I do, I did, I mean, I can look back now and really see just God making decisions that I couldn't make for myself, you know, clearing space out of my life where it actually then made sense to go. Um, so yeah, it took about, it was a chunk of time between those two things. It is amazing how, how much we think we control. Yeah. (laughs) And, and how we forget or are not awake to the fact that so much is going on that we have no control of whatsoever. And it's just, it's, as you say, making space, making room. So it's easier how the universe kind of conspires. Yeah, and I, I kind of think that's always happening. But the, there are times in life where we maybe are given the eyes to see it mm. or that when we have a whatever sort of experience that makes us go, maybe there's more for me to see that I'm seeing, that we can see it. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, because we get caught up in day-to-day busy-minded thinking about content, whatever's happening right in front of you. You get lost from what's really going on behind the scenes Mm -hmm. or uh, out of sight in a sense until Mm -hmm. you take insight to be your friend, right? You look to insight, you look to those opportunities to notice things that perhaps are not on the surface and yet they're guiding you all along the way. And it just takes being awake to them. Mm-hmm. No small thing. No small thing. Yes, it's, agreed. Sure. Yeah, I like to think about um, intentionally um, being more aware of my conscious contact, right? With you can call it the universe, you can call it spirit. I would call it. I would call it the Holy Spirit, probably. But you know, increasing conscious contact. Yeah, yeah. And that expands, right? Mm-hmm. When when you s- inhabit that space more frequently. Then it seems to expand within us, and I think it's helpful for people guiding their lives as a result. In your time when you were doing the counseling, what comes up over and over again for people hmm. that you've you've discovered? I do think um, that there is sort of underneath everything, whatever whatever presenting problem may be, which can be a million different things. That there is this sort of um, Looking for connection, looking for purpose, looking for hope, um, for some sort of uh, meaning to the getting up and going to bed and the rat race uh, is is underneath everything. So I um, I I feel like if if folks can develop whatever their version of uh, a spiritual life is right, whatever that means, Um, that it does, which always includes learning to listen to your intuition and learning to move beyond your fear, right? It always includes living more into courage and being fully awake, whether the problem is um, 
you know, an addiction or an ending marriage or um, past abuse, what, whatever it is, there is this undercurrent of all of that. There's also this need to know that, that you are enough, mm-hmm. which is deeply tied to all of that. If people can become attached or, or sort of get connected to their inherent worth, it can change everything. Um, regardless of faith or not, you know, that if we can come from a place where there's a bottom line assumption that we all have inherent um, worth that cannot be added to or taken away from simply because we exist, simply because we landed on the planet, then then that that is really um, what everything is about. Because when we have that and we're in touch with that, then I'm in touch with that about you too, because it's not a threat to me. I'm not in competition with it. it it's, it's part of what it means to be in community. Yeah. And it's a connection with, you know, from one soul to another mm-hmm. versus from one ego to another mm-hmm. or intellect to another intellect. It's interesting because I just saw the Mr. Rogers documentary. Mm. Did you see that? I've not seen it yet. Oh, it's, well, it's essentially what you're just saying there. Mm. I mean, Mr. Rogers, um, he he his whole premise was there is nothing you need to do to earn worthiness. Right. You're inherently worthy. And that's what he was trying to share with children who he felt really needed to hear this because for so many years they'd been dismissed or, you know, that oh, what they say or what they feel is not is not of import. And he turned that around. Now, interestingly, I don't I didn't remember this, but in the documentary, they were talking about how so many people vilified Mr. Rogers later on oh, saying, wow. oh, well, he created this I'm so special generation mm-hmm. where I don't have to then do anything because I'm already special. But that wasn't what he was talking about. That wasn't what he was pointing to. Mm-hmm. So it's so easy for people to misinterpret and use their intellect to, you know, point to something that was so pure mm-hmm. and so true and turn it into something like manipulative. In some yeah, way. yeah, exactly. And and it misses the point. Well, because real worth, you know, it doesn't um, need to have any more of it than anyone else. Right. So um, because then you're actually operating from not being in touch with your worth. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think that was grossly misinterpreted, probably mm-hmm. what he was trying to do, because what get, that can also lead to like with the me generation is, you know, parents sort of feeling like, well, my kid is the most important kid. Right. Right. Yeah. As opposed we to swing the other way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. As opposed to actually my child is incredibly precious and has all of this amazing worth, as does every other single child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when you come from that place, then you don't have a lot of extra thinking and, and uh, maneuvering mm-hmm. around life. You're coming from that pure place of, of respect for yourself and for others. Mm-hmm. And, and from that, you, you, you move about the world through love and compassion. Mm-hmm. And that makes such a difference. Where do you think uh, people's lack of uh, worth comes from? Mm. I would say in general, we for some time have measured our worth by what we produce. 
um, by whatever that is. You know, let's say it's, um, you know, the amount of, of game you bring back home to the cave, right? Or um, the amount of uh, how, how your stocks did in a certain day or, um, you know, it, all of those things in between or even how much you got done on your to-do list that day. Yeah, measurement. You know? but yeah, whatever the measurement is. I mean, it could even be um, even when it's it's geared towards like helping others and, and goodness, it, you know, we can fall into the trap of measuring our worth based on how much good we're doing, right? Mm-hmm. And all of that is is a um, getting away from from I would say the source that we do those things and we enjoy those things and they can bring all sorts of um, of things into our lives, but are they don't affect our core sense of worth? And and then it's a vicious cycle as well. Of if you don't keep up, yeah, then you, your worth is in your mind diminished. Yeah. And you keep looking to the outside to yeah. replenish right. what's missing inside. Right, right. I think that's exactly right. So you have to do sermons I on do. a regular basis. I do. I'm wondering, where do you get your inspiration? Yeah. Um, well, I pray. I mean, I, I very much see sermon writing um, and delivery as a, a grace and a gift that I can't do by myself. So I very much you know, rely as much as I know how to on, on God and the Holy Spirit. Um, but also just from life, you know, I do tend to, um, I, I see sort of our Bible, our scripture as, as we would call it, intersecting with so much of life and so much else of my own, um, of my own readings and my own explorations and so many things I've learned or lived. So it's, it's sort of a combination, but sometimes it's, you know, another person or, or, um, a story or being really inspired by, um, something that someone's doing. Mm. So a, a wide variety, I would say, as well as my colleagues, I should give a shout out to them because, um, I, we have a pastoral staff and we do Bible studies together each week. And it's, you know, they always amaze me. They're brilliant and very faithful and, um, very inspirational. So that's, that's a piece too. So that you can, that's part of your community, right? Absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. building that community. Mm-hmm. Um, what other ways do you create community? Because I know that's a, that's very thematic. It's been thematic mm-hmm. since um, early childhood for mm-hmm. you, and mm-hmm. we've been talking about that. But mm-hmm. how do you do that now within the structure of mm-hmm. the church and the work that you do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I see a big piece of my particular um, skill set and gifts um, as being about building community. And uh, right now we're actually launching a, a series of small groups. For example, we have 130 folks who are going to be um, starting in small groups for a sort of defined period of time. So that's a very like structural strategic thing. But there's a deeper piece that's um, almost more cultural. I, I do find it a little challenging in New England to, mm-hmm. to build community, um, both professionally, personally, um, so both within the church as well as just my own life outside of the church. It's, Harder than in the South? I, I, that's my experience. Yeah, that there's just more, um, there's sort of more to get through, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I sometimes feel like I don't know how to. So, um, and not that the South is perfect in that way at all. It's just different. So, and as far as just in my own personal life, just reaching out, trying to connect uh, with folks that I feel 
drawn to. I, I also do still maintain a large community that isn't here. So I have sort of support systems that are, are really still pretty heavily in the South, but also all over the, the country that are, that are really vital and important to me that I stay pretty connected with. And that's really important to have have your circles of people who are physically close. Mm-hmm. And I think for all of us now in the in um, the global connectivity, we have friends around the world yeah. now because we can. Yeah. It's easy to maintain those relationships, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. if they're not present physically in your life. Mm-hmm. I also think that building community, that you, you have to just be authentic and model authenticity if it's not, if you're not finding it. I think that's a pretty important thing. And I think like like um, spirits and like souls will find each other. I'm wondering, is there anything calling you now mm-hmm. that you're being drawn to? I am sitting with, just sort of letting it be right now, more um, just the idea of, of doing more writing as, as well as the other thing I do feel called to is um, this that the, the church, and I mean the church universal, like the big church, is in a big time of uh, transition and transformation. And that I, I I do feel very excited about that and very sort of called towards um, helping to, to fan that into flame, if that makes sense. Like it very much feels like um, that part of my life is about being a bridge often between old and new, you know, mm-hmm. and um, that that may be a key piece of uh, the next 20 years, which is sort of vocationally about what I have left for ministry, you know? So a big answer and a specific answer. Yeah, and back to the quote that you Mm. uh, shared with us earlier, that's a perfect description. Mm. So right now, it's just something that's taking form for you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a direction and you've set some things in motion and you're gathering people around you and people are coming to you, it sounds like. And I keep, fe- I, I do feel like I keep getting the sense in a deep way of just, just, just trust here. Just slow down a little. Yeah. And trust. Don't force anything. Just trust. I love that. Yeah. It's just being, it's being awakened, mm-hmm. awakened to the wisdom within you. Mm. And knowing you're you're not alone and you're not in total control. <laughs> yes. And and sort of yeah. you know, instead of leaning in, yeah. lean back <laughs> and let it mm, bring yeah, you let forward. it come through you. Yeah. Oh, it's really been lovely having you with us. Oh, thank this you. It's been a great so conversation. Thanks. I think our listeners will get a lot from it. There's mm-hmm. a real depth and um, we appreciate the fact that you've explored mm-hmm. um your life with us. Well, thanks. Yeah. Thanks. It's um, thanks for your interest. And it's fun to fun to, to talk to you all a little bit. No, oh, it's been yeah. a pleasure. If people would like to um, be in touch with you, mm-hmm. how would they do that? Um, they can go to the Hancock Church website, uh, which is hancockchurch.org. And they can find me under staff and, and send me an email or call me. It's pretty easy. And the email address is barbara at hancockchurch.org. And you are located in Lexington, Massachusetts, in case there's another Hancock Church out there. We are in Lexington, (laughs) Massachusetts, right on the Battle Green. Oh, really? Oh, what a great spot, Mm -hmm. I think. It is. It It is. is. It's a fascinating spot (laughs) all the time. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, thank you again, Barbara. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks, Barbara. Thanks. Until next time, Lana. Bye, Linda. Bye. You've been listening to Wise Women Speak. If you'd like to hear more, please go to wisewomenspeakpodcast.com or find us on iTunes.